Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector. I'm Emily Adams, the head of SVA's Older Australian Practice, and today I'm talking to Dr. Carrie Noonan, Director of the Deaf Literacy Institute, about her work in grief, the concept of disenfranchised grief, and grief literacy. Drawing on our article in the SBA Quarterly, The Art of Supporting Grief, Have We Lost It? We're going to be discussing some of the ways employers and managers can support their staff to grieve. This conversation came about because we observed a growing need across the social sector in understanding and responding to grief and loss. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. It's great to be here, Emily. So, Carrie, you've been working with grief for many decades now. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to work in this space? Like many people who work in in this space, I started as a volunteer uh, and I started working as a volunteer with Camp Quality when I was 18 and I was still in high school actually and I... Camp Quality is a camp for kids who have a life-threatening illness. That was in the late 80s. So it was that experience of of spending time with um, kids and their their families and the other companions, plus uh, my own experiences of loss and grief, which were quite profound and really, um, you know, really life-changing experiences for me as a teenager. They led me into a lot of curiosity about loss and grief. And I think, you know, it's really quite normal for teenagers to be curious about loss and grief. And so then I started to become more curious and I went and studied psychology at uni and became a psychologist. And I started my first position as a psychologist as a bereavement counsellor with a palliative care service in Western Sydney. And that's really um, how things began for me. And what are you doing now? What is your current role? So at the moment, I wear a couple of different hats. I do some research work at the University of Western Sydney. I also work in private practice as a clinical psychologist here in Dubbo. And the Death Literacy Institute provides training and consultancy around evaluation and research. And we've worked with lots of different organisations across Australia, And we um, have also worked a bit interestingly in um, India and soon to be Bangladesh, working around grief literacy and supporting the development of programs in, yeah, in India and and soon to be Bangladesh, which is kind of fun, Keeps, keeps me busy wearing all those different hats. So I imagine over that time, you've learned quite a bit about grief and the experience of grief. Can you share what some of those learnings have been? And has there been anything that's really surprised you? Yeah, so much learning, like constant learning. I, I mean, the, the, the probably the big thing, like 30 years ago, we were doing a lot of death education in the community and working a lot with communities and families to try and bust some of the myths and deal with some of the the difficulties and avoidance around talking about death. Some of those things haven't really changed. We're still doing that. We're still trying to kind of break down some of those barriers. I think one of the things that we were doing back then that has persisted is a kind of some of our beliefs as a community about grief 
and you know the in particular Kubler-Ross has been one of the most amazing influences around grief in this space and and her work in the 60s and 70s what we often forget now is that her work was so revolutionary and so amazing it changed the way we thought about grief we had no real kind of stage theory or way of kind of thinking about grief so of course people absolutely latched on to that simple language five stages of grief idea mm. what's happened since though is this enormous body of research and I don't want to get too kind of nerdy there's this enormous body of research kind of understanding grief and we you know, while grief is an individual process, it is way more complex than five stages. And it's based and connected to our culture and our community and our family and our experiences, our life experiences. And, you know, we grow around grief. Grief stays with us and we grow around grief. And that's, that's probably some of the most um, interesting and kind of profound learning that has happened, I think, over the past 30 years. Because I think we know in our guts, to be colloquial about it, you know, we know in our guts that there isn't five stages of grief. Um, it's more complex than that. It's, it's um, bigger and more profound and impacts our lives. In, a, in an incredible way. The other aspect of that, of course, is that grief isn't just a negative experience, that there is a lot of growth that comes from grief. It's not to say that grief isn't hard. It's not to say that grief doesn't absolutely devastate us um, and devastate our lives and kick us in the guts and, and you know, take us down and all of that stuff. It's all of those things, but also, we, whether we like it or not, we learn stuff about ourselves. And some of the most incredible ventures, social ventures, social movements have happened when you think about it because of loss and grief. People have been motivated to change the world because of things that have happened to them. So that's something that's become, there's been more understanding about that positive. Um, some people call it post um post-traumatic growth. That's one way of thinking about it. There's a bit of um, whatever about that. We can get nerdy about that. But, but there is absolutely no, no denying that people grow through their grief as well. So, Carrie, you touched on something there that I think is really important for our listeners. Most people think about grief and they automatically go to death. But it sounds like grief is a slightly broader concept than that. Can you discuss that a bit? We absolutely acknowledge these days that loss leads to grief and there is a grieving process um, involved in loss. Moving house, going from a child to an adolescent, going from an adolescent to an adult, um, moving jobs, losing a job, changing states, COVID, not being able to see people. These are losses that we've experienced very um, profoundly the last two years as a, as a society. So we're absolutely, much of what we're experiencing is a grief response, um, which means it's going to take some healing from all of us <laughs> to kind of get, get on track, I think. And I've heard you talk about the concept of disenfranchised grief. I think that's a really critical concept and potentially a new concept for a lot of our listeners. Can you tell us a 
bit about what disenfranchised grief is and give us a couple of examples about what that could look like? Yeah, well, I think at its simplest, disenfranchised grief is just un unrecognised loss. So if, if a loss is unrecognised or undervalued because of stigma or because of some other experience, then the grief isn't recognised. People's grieving isn't recognised. That's, that's really the, the heart of disenfranchised grief. So, for example, children are often disenfranchised because we tend to underestimate grief in children. Well, they don't understand. They're too young. They need to go to the funeral. They're too young. Um, you know, oh, they're acting out. Stop being naughty. There are lots of lots of experiences of disenfranchisement um, in in the grief of children. The other the other one that often um, comes to mind for me is like relationships. When when someone dies, we we often even as family members don't know all of the relationships and all of the connections that that person has had. And often death brings to life a whole heap of relationships and connections that we didn't know about. And, you know, I remember working with someone who was a same-sex partner of someone who died and, and I've worked with many same-sex partners and in those situations, if, if the family doesn't recognise that relationship, then it can have such a massive impact on the grief of the um, community that surrounds that person. They may not be able to go to the funeral. They may, their, their grief basically may be um, delegitimized by, by the family. And so that's a, a very um, difficult example and, and a difficult you know, the impact of disenfranchised grief is that grief can be more complicated because you don't get to go to the rituals and you don't get that social connection that we know is so important with grief. You don't get that acknowledgement. You don't get that connection because grief is as, as much a social experience as it is an individual one. So being excluded, not having your grief acknowledged publicly can be deeply isolating. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, it's like another thing to have to deal with on top of the fullness of the experience of grief that you're already going through. Wow. And you are leading the Death Literacy Institute. And on your website, you talk in spades about grief literacy. Can you tell us a bit about what grief literacy is and, and what, what does that mean for people who are trying to become more grief literate? Yeah, good question. So grief literacy is, is a newish term. And there's been, so I, and I'll talk a little bit about death literacy too, because I think it helps to kind of think about both. But grief literacy, like death literacy in a way, it's about having the capacity. So having the capacity to grieve well, because you have some understanding of the process. So if you, if the only view of grief you have is the five stages of grief, then, then that could, you know, really impact on the way that you think about yourself your ability to normalise your experience for yourself or your ability to normalise the experience and be there for other people um, if, 
if you've got a kind of limited framework around what grief is. So grief literacy is really about kind of being able to, to draw on that knowledge um, and normalise the experience for yourself and others. And, you know, like that's, that's where the, I think some of the insights from death literacy are important here because we know with death literacy that our skills and capacities build over time because of our experiences and it's similar for grief literacy the the um the learning that we have whether it be from books workshops our own grief um supporting other people supporting our children all of those experiences help us to kind of um sit with that experience of 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 loss and grief so yeah it's like you know being competent uh whenever you feel competent you kind of have some muscles around and, and when we think about grief it's like you, we build up some muscles because of those experiences around an emotional or psychological skill and that capacity or competency helps us support ourselves and helps us support other people Mm-hmm. So bringing that into kind of sharper focus, thinking about competence, many of our listeners are going to be employers or managers that are looking to support their staff who might be grieving. Um, and how do they do that without overstepping or being inappropriate? What would be some practical examples of what good support could look like? It's a really good question and an important question. So, you know, in the compassionate communities movement, we talk about uh, grief and loss, death and dying being part of all the civic spaces in our lives and work being one of those important spaces. So one of the most important things is, you know, thinking about the culture, like the team environment and the culture that already exists in the organisation, that's super important because that will help guide you around thinking about how you respond to a death or how you respond to grief. Because I would say, like, when we think about loss and grief, we're thinking about the continuum. And I would encourage people to think about that continuum from being a caregiver to someone who might have a chronic illness or who is dying, or one of your staff living with a chronic illness, which may um, shorten their life in some way, all the way through the caring period, the dying, the death, the bereavement, and living post-bereavement, living with the, the change that happens because of that bereavement. So really think broadly about that experience and think about the culture and how your team and your work environment supports that. So it might be that you have a conversation together about what will we do around here if this happens for us? And even often um, organisations are actually a bit surprised that there are already people who are caring for elderly parents or that there are already people who are caring for someone who's dying or someone's bereaved. Those things can sometimes happen very kind of quietly because people want to make sure that their job's protected. So what's the environment and culture, again, that's enabling people to be able to reach out to HR or to reach out to their team leader to be able to say, hey, I need some help or, hey, this is happening for me? 
I've worked with organisations and heard of organisations who do things like uh, allow staff to donate care days to each other. That would be an example of kind of the culture setting in an environment. Thinking about your bereavement policy, super important. Do you have like a three-day bereavement policy? Is that okay? Have you ever asked your staff if three days is okay? And what happens when someone goes on maternity leave and their baby dies? How do we support those women? So really thinking about how do we want to do this? That sets the scene. Doing that thinking sets the scene then for creating an environment for someone to come back into the workplace where death doesn't become the elephant in the room. What you want is to be able to have an environment where people are able to have a communication so that that person comes into an environment where they know what people know and they've had control over that. So I walk back into the workplace knowing that everyone knows all the people I want to know know and I've and my team leader or someone has given them a sense of what kind of support I need. Now that might mean that I'm really up for everyone coming and saying, hey, good day, I heard what happened, can I give you a hug, what do you need or whatever. Um, or it might be actually I will be the person who, who makes the move to, to let you know if I need help um, and we'll check in with you regularly or whatever it is. I guess what I'm saying is there are many different ways teams can do this, but um, your culture is everything, building on that and also leaving the person who uh, in control so that, so that the issue, the grief, the death, the dying, the, the whatever it is that could become the elephant in the room does not become that because that stigma and silence is what makes distress even bigger in a workplace. Thank you, Carrie. I think that's going to be helpful for a number of our listeners. And many of our listeners at this moment in time might be grieving. You might be reaching a number of people who are actively grieving. Is there anything that you would want to say to those people, any advice that you have for them or things for them to reflect on? One of the things that I learned really early in my training, which has not only become like a professional kind of saying, but it is also something that I apply to my, my own life and my own grief, which may or may not be helpful for people, but I just want to offer it up. And that is we grieve as we live. And that idea that we grieve in alignment with our values, with our um, life experiences, with our culture, with our gender, with our age, all of those things, all of those things are happening as we grieve. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that because with grief comes a whole lot of opinions and expectations about what you should or shouldn't do. You should do this. You should have a view and you should do this. And you should have done that. Um, don't feel responsible. There's a whole lot of opinions about how, what you should feel and what you should do. So it can feel like you're losing yourself a little and it can feel really, really discombobulating. Grief is discombobulating, let's face it, anyway. It knocks you off your feet. 
slow down if you can when a death happens so that you can be in your body as much as you can to experience those early experiences of grief and and really just be super connected to yourself and who you are and what you bring to this current experience. If you've been through lots of death and trauma, for example, then it, it's going to stir up all of those things again. Um, be aware that, that 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 may happen. If this is the first time you're, you've, you've lost someone really, really close to you or you're experiencing a really profound loss, then a lot of it might feel like a shock. A lot of it might feel unexpected. Just get loved up. That would be my advice. And, and talk to people and connect with people who know you well because it's those people who know you well who will say, hey, this is, yeah, of course, of course, this is happening for you. We're here. You know, we're here. And they'll provide the support, the normalising support that can be really helpful. But they'll also say to you, hey, you might need some extra care. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie. That was very helpful um, and really insightful. So we appreciate it. And thank you for coming in and speaking with us today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I hope it's helpful for people. If you're interested in learning more, the article explores the impacts of grief, inviting us to consider opportunities we might have to support those dealing with loss and providing practical considerations and tips for delivering this support. Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA Quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash.